think it's very important to move away from these generic words like calorie restriction uh, and from the words like fasting or intermittent fasting. They really don't mean anything. You know? and, and in the medical world, uh, it would be very strange if uh, doctors say, I'm going to recommend that you have uh, uh, this type of intervention versus I'm going to give you this dose of this drug to take these hours, right? So, okay, so we went from a very careful, disciplined uh, intervention to words like fasting or eating. You know? So I always say saying fasting is like saying eating. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, eating could be very bad or, 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 or very uh, good for you, depending on what it is. Welcome to Collective Insights. On the show today, we have Dr. Walter Longo. He is one of the world's experts in the field of longevity and healthy eating. Professor Longo is also the scientific director of the Create Cures Foundation and the Walter Longo Foundation. Be sure to check out his book, The Longevity Diet, for a deeper dive into the subjects we're about to talk about. Stay tuned to learn all about the benefits of the fasting mimicking diet and about the latest science on longevity. Let's jump right in. Here's Heather and Walter. Welcome to Collective Insights. I'm your host today, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I am joined by Dr. Walter Longo. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. So I'm wondering, you have been working with longevity and aging for a long time. You've gotten to meet some relatively old individuals. What have you learned from the centenarians that you've uh, you've met over the years? Well, usually, um, in, in most cases, uh, you learn that uh, each one has a different story, and uh, and each one of the centenarians uh, uh, may have a completely different story from the other one, and they all believe that's it. That is the secret uh, for longevity. And uh, but then I think it, it also becomes very interesting because uh, uh, as you ask questions, for example, Emma Morano. In, uh, in northern Italy, uh, in uh, Verbania, she got to 117. Uh, she was the third oldest person who ever lived in the planet, as far as we know. And, um, and I always remember that the New York Times uh, talked about the, um, the fact that she ate uh, uh, three eggs a day, and, um, and she ate meat, raw meat actually, about 100 to 150 grams of raw meat every day. Um, but uh, as I got to uh, know her, I learned that she had six brothers and sisters, and all of them made it past the age of 90, and one sister made it to 102. Uh, so clearly, uh, and both of the parents, I think, made it either to uh, over 90 or, or close to it. Uh, so that uh, basically uh, told me that there's a genetic component. Right? That, yeah, she can probably eat uh, as many eggs as she wants, uh, and she's pre- still going to make it to a, a very old age. So, so that's just an example to tell you that, that when you go to these uh, subjects, um, you heard you hear stories, but uh, some of the stories are also very important in uh, in uh, sort of uh, being compared to the the, uh, the real data uh, on millions of people and and in the lab, et cetera, et cetera, which uh, um, then. Um, uh, you know, needs to be uh, the real foundation for the, the decisions we make. 
Yeah. So how much is nature versus nurture? You're talking about genetic components and then also lifestyle components. So do you think it's a 50-50 split or do you think that one makes more of a difference than the other? Well, there is not much you can do uh, on the, about the genes that you get for now. And so uh, obviously the, um, the idea would be, yeah, for some people, like we just mentioned, it could be a remarkable effect. And we know that in some centenarians' family, like, like the one I just mentioned, but I met many families like that, um, it's pretty clear that they have a set of genes, most likely, that are super longevity genes, and together they give them a, a very high chance of making it there. Uh, for everybody else, um, uh, you, you know, let's say over 99, and probably 99.9% of the population, the uh, lifestyle um, make, is going to be the, the big, big uh, um, uh, changer, game changer, and um, so, so yes, so independently, so the heritability of longevity actually is fairly low uh, in the general population. It's not low in these families, but it is low in the general population. So the lifestyle is what you have to uh, count on, and and lifestyle can no doubt make a, a, a big difference. And, uh, and now it's, uh, there's pretty much unanimous uh, uh, agreement that it can make a big difference on diseases, uh, but it can also make a big difference on longevity. So in terms of lifestyle, you have popularized these fasting, a fasting mimicking diet or the Prolon diet is what's available to the general public. Um, you also have another diet that's available to cancer patients. Is that right? Yes, uh, so that's uh, actually this year, uh, I like to think uh, of it after 12 years that we've been doing, uh, or over 10 years of clinical trials, I, I hope at least that this will be the end of the beginning on, uh, on fasting and fasting making diet and cancer. We, we, we're going to have three trials just on our side and the collaborating groups, that clinical trials that are going to be published um, and uh, representing uh, uh, around 300 patients. In diff with different cancers so um, yeah so then I, I hope by the end of 2020 uh, that the oncologists all over the world will have an option uh, to uh, incorporate integrate the fasting making diet together with the standard of care um, and soon enough I think we're gonna approach the FDA uh, to start thinking about for example um, the, the, the combination FMD with specific cancers, possibly breast cancer or, or prostate cancer, and see if, uh, if there is a, uh, a track for um, FDA approval. So what would that look like? Say if I was undergoing chemo or some other sort of treatment, radiation for breast cancer, and I wanted to do the fasting mimicking diet in addition to the standard of care, what would that look like for me as a cancer patient? Uh, so to you, it looked like a box, <clears throat> and so, uh, and that's exactly how we wanted to do it. And uh, I don't, I donate everything uh, from this whole operation to, to charity and to research. So um, I, I, I'm not doing the box uh, to uh, for financial reasons. But I thought it was very important to standardize it. And um, and so in the box, uh, there's going to be two, uh, most likely two options based on the clinical trials. One is going to be four days. One is going to be five days, and um, in the four-day one, um, if it's chemo, uh, it's going to be three days before chemo, one after. Uh, that the, the the patient will eat uh, the food in the box and nothing else, 
And if it's a five day, then it's gonna be four plus one. So four days before and one after. It's mostly a vegan diet. With, it's low protein, high fat, 100% uh, vegan, um, and, um, and, it, and it has uh, fasting mimicking properties. Uh, what it means is that it causes uh, same or very similar changes to the water-only fasting while the patient is allowed to eat. And, uh, um, and the reason for uh, the FMD, for all FMDs actually, was that when we first did the first trial over 10 years ago, a USC, uh, and it was a water-only fasting in, in chemotherapy, and, and none of the patients wanted to do it, and the oncologists were very worried about it, or, or at least most of them were worried about it. We were having a difficult time recruiting patients, and then uh, we went to the National Cancer Institute and, and basically asked for funds to develop a fasting-making diet, and thanks to them and other funds, uh, we did it, and, and so now, um, it's available for, for lots of different applications, not just cancer. So FMD is the fast, fasting mimicking diet. And for cancer, it would look like a box showing up. You would do it three days before chemo, one day after. And what if I'm just a normal person, healthy, a patient of mine who's, say, in their 50s? As a doctor, if I wanted my patient to be on one of these diets, what would that look like for them? And how would it be different if, um, if it was a cancer patient? Yeah, so the, um, we, we uh, published a uh, trial on, on 100 uh, subjects uh, uh, three years ago, uh, normal subjects. And so they did, uh, in, in, uh, in that trial, we tested them, uh, 71 of them actually, it was a crossover, uh, randomized crossover trial. 71 of them did the diet, three cycles of the diet, and this is five days. Uh, it's uh, 1,100 calories on day one, and then it goes down to 800 calories. And, um, and uh, um, so, yeah, that, that's what lots of people are now doing, um, particularly those that have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, high fasting glucose, uh, uh, high C CRP, uh, high triglycerides. So all those markers are going down or going down a lot depending on the patient, but uh, significantly going down in those that start with elevated um, levels of them. And now we just done another trial. It's not, it's not published yet, but uh, let's just say that it was very, very supportive of the first trial. So that's good news. I now have uh, another 80 patient randomized trial uh, confirming essentially almost everything that we showed in the first trial. So that's for pe normal people. Lots of doctors are now uh, starting to look at this as an option um, um, when, when possible uh, to not place patients on drugs and uh, um, so I think that uh, uh, whenever that is an option um, that's uh, something that they can consider. Uh, cancer patient um, so thus far of course uh, because there's a diagnosed disease and, and the FDA regulates on this um, the, the doctor the oncologists have not officially been able to recommend it uh, starting hopefully after these three trials um, when they're published, I think that they're most likely uh, going to have the option. There's going to be discussions with the various uh, government uh, offices, but uh, uh, hopefully uh, this will be made available to all the patients and oncologists that want to do it. It'll always have to be through the oncologist, but uh, um, hopefully the, the, the oncologist will be on board to uh, allow patients uh, with all kinds of uh, therapies, by the way, this was uh, tested mostly in chemotherapy, but now 
also on, uh, in combination with uh, uh, hormone therapy, um, immunotherapy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, so the idea, uh, at least in the animal studies, everything is looking very, uh, it, it, it's looking like an enhancement, uh, having an enhancement effect on, on lots of different, uh, in, in combination with lots of different therapies. So in a cancer patient, there's this concern about weight loss, right? Cachexia is one of these end-stage marker representations or manifestations of cancer um, where people lose a lot of weight. And of course, with calorie restriction, weight loss is something that you would expect. So how do you square that circle? Yeah, I mean, I, I try to stay, I mean, uh, we've been trying to stay away from these genetic words like fasting, calorie restriction. And so the way we handle that uh, with cancer patient, and now I think we're probably close to 500 patients that have been tested with many different cancer, many different therapies. So this is why we want to standardize. We want to move away from uh, genetic words that are almost for sure going to help uh, hurt the patient. Uh, let's say you do extend the calorie restriction. Of course, you're going to be cachectic. We know this. You're going to lose muscle mass. Uh, and uh, so eventually, you, you and pro potentially you're going to be immunosuppressed, or certainly immune, your immune system is going to be affected. It could be, in some ways, positive, in some ways negative. But the FNDs, the fasting-making diets, are different. That's why they're short. And uh, um, and so in the clinical trials, for example, in Italy with breast cancer women, what we did, we we uh, had a, a video. Uh, where they could do uh, exercise, and uh, um, and then they did the fasting vegan diet, and then they did this, this little exercise, um, and the cachexia, etc., was not an issue. Uh, it's rarely an issue. Uh, so I would say out of 500 patients, maybe, uh, and, I, and I'm just throwing out the number, but it comes from you know the discussion with with the oncologist and and looking at the data. But I would say out of 500 patients. Uh, uh, the people that had uh, a severe problem with uh, um, weight loss and not being able to regain it are going to be no more than 20, uh, no more than 20, I would say. Oh, out of yeah. 500. That's a very small amount. Okay. So well worth um, maybe that small risk to get the potential benefit. Now, if I'm uh, one of my patients, um, a 50-year-old healthy female, relatively healthy female, and I want to do this diet, you said that you would do three rounds, is that right? So three rounds of, can you just break it down for me? What would it look like? Would it taste good? Would I want to eat it? <laughs> yes. So the, um, I think the doctor, uh, if, if there is a disease involved uh, or there is a condition involved, the doctor needs to make the, make the, the uh, decision on how to do it. The trial uh, it was three cycles, once a month for three months, and um, and then we measured everything at baseline, and then one week after the third cycle. Um, but I think it's perfectly fine to uh, to say do it every three months, or do every four months, or do it every two months, and um, and let's see what happens. Uh, especially, let, let's say somebody was uh, fasting glucose of 98, uh, so probably moving in towards insulin resistance. Uh, in a year or two, they could be diabetic, um, so or pre-diabetic at least. Uh, so that patient it could be placed on, let's say, once every three months, do the cycle, uh, let's see what happens. Version A. Version B would be, let's say somebody had 105. Um, maybe then that's already a pre-diabetic person, uh, three cycles, uh, see if they move back 
and then see after, at the end of that, and, and this uh, has uh, happened in the clinical trial, at the end of that, let's say that they go from 105 to 90, um, then see how long it takes for them to go back to 105 in time the, the FMD based on that. It might not work on everybody, it worked on average uh, in the general uh, group, but that doesn't mean it's gonna work for everybody, but, it, but I would say it should work with a lot of people and, um, and then uh, it's just a matter of identifying how many times a, a year they have to do it to stay in the normal range if they are responsive. So in my practice, if I see a patient who has prediabetes, then I'm usually recommending some sustainable lifestyle interventions, right? Like reducing your, your carbs, reducing your sugars, certainly um, going in the direction of potentially a grain-free diet. But I would say that for my patients, the recommendation is to do that every day, not for five days every month or five days, you know, three times over the next few months. So does it matter what patients are eating in between the cycles or are you not even factoring that in? Uh, no, we're not factoring that in. The, the idea was based on the reality, right? So obviously, let's say half of my book is about what you eat every day, but the reality when I, when I talk to people uh, you get maybe, I don't know, one-fourth to one-fifth that, you know. So I've been studying longe- nutrition and longevity for 30 years now. And my boss was Roy Walford, and he had been studying nutrition and longevity for 50 years. And um, and uh, and so, you know, uh, we know what we're talking about as far as how do you make somebody live long uh, on nutrition. And I would say it's probably no more than one in four, one in five that will listen. Uh, and, we're, and we're not talking about any radical, and I, I recommend the pescatarian diet. You know? So fairly reasonable, uh, yes, it does. It just has vegan plus fish, but I, I, you know, most people could do it with no problems. Uh, it's not completely vegan, it, it's very reasonable. And yet, I would say it's, it's difficult to, to get people uh, to do that. So yeah, the current recommendation, like in your case, is do this and do that. Um, most people are not gonna do it. Um, and uh, most people that do it, and lots of people that do it, eventually they will turn back to whatever it is they came from. Uh, so that's a reality. And so now we're saying, uh, okay, can you do at least five days every three months, right? And then you get most people, even the ones that absolutely have not ever observed anything in, in their lives, to say, you know what, if it comes like a medicine and the doctor tells me, uh, yeah, I don't bother me the rest of the time. I'll do what I do, and, and nobody's gonna change me. But I will do that, and that's what we were shooting for. And and that's exactly the recommendation in the clinical trial. Don't change anything. Uh, and 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 sure enough, the one that were probably the vegans and the the, the longevity dieters uh, did not improve that much, right? So the one that started perfect. Uh, not much we could see. It doesn't mean that it didn't improve, but we couldn't see it. We saw a little bit of decrease in IGF-1. We saw a little bit of weight loss, but those were the significant effects on the general population. But when you started, like high uh, cholesterol, high blood pressure, high triglyceride, uh, pre-diabetic, high CRP, then they responded a lot. So this is suggesting that um, that yes, the people that don't behave are, are those that are going to be benefit the most from uh, from the uh, the FMD. So you make a really great point that if 
I make a recommendation, there's not going to be that many patients that follow it, especially if it involves, you know, changing their well-ingrained habits, like what they shop for at the store, how they cook or whether or not they eat out. Um, and so the, the box that you're describing that shows up, make it, makes it very simple for people to incorporate this into their life. And what you're finding is that it's those people who maybe engage in some of those unhealthy behaviors more often, where we have a more opportunity for change or a larger larger delta. Is that, that's what you're finding in the, in the research that you're doing is that if somebody has a relatively good, good lifestyle, then this isn't going to move the needle too much. But if they're indulging quite a bit, then having access to something like the Prolon diet is, is really beneficial. Yes. I mean, at least at the, at the uh, disease level and in the, in what you can observe, right? That it could very well be a most likely. So for example, the mice uh, that we study have a, a very healthy diet, a fairly healthy diet. They're not overweight, they're not, they don't eat anything bad, but yet we extend the lifespan, we cut the tumors almost in half, and, uh, you know, and we decrease inflammation by almost 50%. So, so there's probably lots of eating things that even those that are fairly healthy will eventually get, but it's hard to see them in, in, in a three-month three uh, to six-month trial. Um, whereas in those that start uh, with a poor diet, it's much easier to see. We can see the significant effects uh, already at cycle two or three. Uh, so that, that's that's a big difference. So the, benefits, uh, the other thing. So the benefits for a relatively healthy person might be longer term, not three to six months, but maybe three to six years or three to six decades even. Right. Even very healthy people get cancer. Even very healthy people get uh uh, cardiovascular disease, maybe not so much diabetes, uh, but yeah, so you may not uh, be able to see the effect of, uh, let's say, the diet, what we've shown very clearly in mice, for example, that the diet is equivalent to a cycle of chemo. Right? So you, if you give mice a cycle of chemo or one cycle of FMD, the, you see the same effect on many, many different types of cancers. So so now let's say you have a precancer cell or a cancer cell, if what we see in mice is true for people, you can see how somebody looking very healthy that has just had that mut first mutation in RAS, and that build, starts building the, the, the future uh, malignant tumor. Uh, yeah, that's possible. And, you know, again, we only know it for mice, but certainly um, we are starting to see evidence uh, uh, for uh, lots of the uh, markers in, in humans moving in, in exactly the same way that uh, we see it in, in mice. And so we suspect that that very hostile environment uh, will be uh, hostile to autoimmune cells, it will be hostile to uh, insulin resistance cells, it will be hostile to uh, uh, um, you know, precancerous cells. So that, um, yeah, we think uh, everybody can benefit. The, the other thing that I wanted to mention, which is very interesting, is that Lots of the people that we place on, they have a poor diet that we place on, on the uh, Prolon FMD, um, this is the first time they've ever been vegan in their lives, right? And, and what we observe in the great majority of people is then to say, you know what, it wasn't so bad to be vegan for five days. Uh, and then they almost, you know, I would say over 90%. They're influenced by this. So in the long run, by the time they do it two, three, four, five times, now they're starting to convert. And they're starting to say, you know what? I don't need to eat uh, 
uh, both the meat, but also the, those they ate lots of uh, pasta and, and, and bread. And they tend to say, you know, I went five days with almost no, with none of it. And, uh, and I was fine and I felt good. And so there may be also some, uh, uh, some uh, I think, cognitive uh, associations, uh, sort of like the opposite of fear conditioning, right? So they, where you basically associate now feeling well uh, and you don't know why you're now looking for the same type of food, but your brain is telling you maybe we need to go that way because we were doing much better during those days. I would say that's exactly what I see in my clinic as well. Whenever I've recommended a cleanse that someone has been able to follow through on, they do. They have this this feeling of like they're less inflamed, they're clearer thinking, their sleep gets better, they appreciate losing a little bit of weight typically, and then they associate the experience with feeling better. The other thing that happens is they start to generate the habits of like, okay, this is what I shop for, that's what I eat, that's what I don't. And some of that, even if not all of it, they take into their everyday life after the cleanse. So um, that's amazing that you're seeing some of those things as well, that people can kind of shift the trajectory, even if it's just a little bit, that can make a lot of difference over a long period of time in their lives. So we are talking about the benefits of fasting mimicking diets. Can you list some others? So potential longevity of reduction in inflammation. And I think what you're describing is the senolytic effect, right? Getting rid of some of these cells that don't serve us. Can you expand on that a bit more? Yes. So, um, We've always known that there is a process called apoptosis, right? And, and if you look at apoptosis, uh, it's really cl a clever system. And apoptosis means programmed cell death. Uh, and so it's a very clever system that during development, but also in cancer, it can kill at least some of the damaged cells and, and leave alone the good ones. And so um, it's not surprising then that maybe during starvation, when um, the system has to look around for uh, something to kill and to sacrifice, right? Because not everything can stay alive. Uh, why? Because uh, let's say that, um, you know, in, in our uh, history, ancient history, um, uh, 50,000 years ago, we would probably regularly undergo a couple of months of no food per year, maybe during the winter season. So in those times, Obviously, the system has to adjust and has to be leaner, uh, has to be smaller, and uh, um, and to do that, going from the summer, let's say, to the winter, um, it has to start eating itself, and uh, and by a, partly by a process called autophagy, but probably part by uh, this new process that we are describing, which is start eating cells and redistributing cells, um, and so. Um, the, it would make sense, as it does for apoptosis, that you select damaged cells first. Um, and now, how do you detect uh, damaged cells? Well, we don't know, but one possibility would be that everything, for example, if you look at mitochondria, everything is in very, um, in very, in a sort of an extraordinary equilibrium. And, and when that equilibrium is disrupted, uh, electrons leak. And, and these oxidants, you know, are generated superoxide, hydrogen peroxide, and so it could be, and we see a lot of evidence for that, that this equilibrium uh, is establishing the cell, and when that equilibrium is distorted, that somehow gives the signal to uh, to the cell itself 
uh, undergo suicide, but it might be also giving the signal to the immune system, go ahead and get rid of me because I'm in trouble. And this is exactly what we see, for example, for breast cancer. Right? So the breast cancer cells that normally are not detectable by the immune system, now we treat them with chemo and the starvation and, they be, and the fasting-making diet, and the immune system now recognizes them as uh, targets to be destroyed. And very interesting, now we're, we're, we're starting to show in a multiple system uh, and, um, and there's uh, others that, that are starting to do the same. So yeah, so the, there is a, seems to be a very sophisticated uh, filtering, select, uh, search and destroy type of, of system, uh, probably for the benefit of maintaining the healthy cells, uh, killing the, the uh, unhealthy. And then what happens is the stem cells get turned on. And of course, um, uh, you will want, you don't know when the food is going to come back around. So you, you kill lots of the, the cells that are not very, very useful. And then you turn on, for example, we've shown that in the, in the blood system, you turn on the hematopoietic stem cells. And, uh, and then when food comes back around, these hematopoietic stem cells can uh, self-renew, so they expand, and they give rise to more white blood cells and uh, leading to improvements in the immune profile, at least in mice, but we're now uh, soon enough are gonna be publishing this for, for people. And you mentioned IGF-1. What's the role of that marker, um, particularly in, in relatively healthy patients? What do you notice there? The, the IGF-1, uh, we think is, a, is, I believe, is the most important uh, uh, marker for life and death. And uh, in fact, soon enough, we're going to publish a meta-analysis on IGF-1 and, uh, and mortality. Uh, but um, the, the, the normal uh, function of IGF-1 is to promote growth uh, and to promote cell division uh, and also to prevent death. Right? So this is why... Um, it's a it's a potentially very problematic uh, growth factor. Why is that? Because um, it is it can promote uh, the growth of precancer of, of normal cells, put them in a sensitive state, then precancer cells, then cancer cells, and it can also block the cancer cell from dying, and so black black apoptosis. And um, and uh, so in, in in fact in uh, um, in mice. The, the mice that have record longevity are those that have uh, no uh, growth hormone uh, uh, synthesis and no or no growth hormone receptor synthesis, meaning that they're, they're lacking either growth hormone or growth hormone receptor, which leads to very low levels of, of IGF-1. Um, and so these mice live about 40% longer, but more important than 40% longer, half of them will never develop any disease uh, versus uh, less than 10% for the regular mice, right? So now you're living 40% longer and you're, you're really uh, eliminating the, a, a big uh, part of the disease in spite of this longer lifespan. So it's really remarkable. Uh, and, and so for the longest time, people thought, well, it must be just mice. Uh, it couldn't possibly be, be people until knowing that the sort of dwarf, because these mice are very small. And so we had known that very little yeast were super protective, super long-lived. The mice the same, uh, and then we went and looked for people, and we found them in Ecuador, and we started studying about 100 of them, uh, and sure enough, um, they have very low levels of, of cancer, uh, just like the mice, 
and they also are protected from diabetes. And, and recently we published that their, uh, their brain seems to be have a more useful profile. So um, they have very low levels of IGF-1. They also have very low levels of insulin. So growth hormone controls insulin, IGF-1, and TOR, which we think are like three, the three most important uh, uh, factors in accelerating the aging process, or certainly three of the most important ones. And uh, yeah, so they may explain why uh, we see such remarkable effects in, in uh, um, all kinds of organisms, but now also in humans. So that is fascinating. Who wouldn't want that, right? <laughs> um, now, so let's, let's kind of segue into who wouldn't want that in, in all um, realistic cases. So there are some people where a calorie-restricted diet or else a fasting-mimicking diet maybe doesn't make a lot of sense. So what are the potential risks? And we're, we are here having this conversation on Friday, March 20th, you know, like 12 hours after Gavin Newsom put everyone in California on lockdown um, because of COVID-19. And so immune function is one of the big things that comes up here, whether we're talking about cancer patients or we're talking about healthy patients, fasting mimicking is a bit stressful on the system. So can you break down maybe some of the, the risks that are associated with doing this? And if maybe right now in the, in the heat of the COVID-19 crisis, is it a good idea with how much um, stress people might be under? Yes. <laughs> so first of all, I, I think it's very important to move away from these generic words like calorie restriction. Uh, and from the words like fasting or intermittent fasting, they really don't mean anything. You know, and, and in the medical world, uh, it would be very strange if uh, doctors say, "I'm going to recommend that you have uh, uh, this type of intervention," versus "I'm going to give you this dose of this drug to take these hours." Right? So, okay. So we went from a very careful, disciplined uh, intervention to words like fasting or eating. You know? So I always say saying fasting is like saying eating. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, eating could be very bad or, 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 or very uh, good for you, depending on what it is. So if we're talking about uh, extended severe restriction of calories, let's say chronic calorie restriction, which means that a normal person with normal weight would start eating all of a sudden 25% less. And that person will become very thin and will be viewed by most doctors as in danger of becoming anorexic. Um, so that can have, believe it or not, very powerful anti-aging effects, but at the same time can have very scary um, effects on all kinds of systems and, uh, and most likely the immune system being one of them. And so, no, very few doctors or, or maybe no doctors recommend that you do this. Although the aging field has been studying this and in fact even put monkeys on this uh, nutrition for 25 years. And, and the effects, uh, at least at the University of Wisconsin, uh, were, were, were very good. And, uh, um, but you start seeing the difference between age-related diseases in the monkeys who are color-restricted and uh, uh, overall mortality. So. The uh, mortality caused by age-related diseases goes down tremendously. Um, they have almost no insulin resistance. They have uh, um, health of the cancers. They have 20, 30% reduction in cardiovascular disease. 
but then they don't live there much longer, right? So suggesting there are trade-offs. And I've been trying to get uh, an answer on the trade-offs for a long time. I, I don't have one yet, but uh, there are trade-offs. And the, one of the trade-offs could be very well immunity. Now, if you move from that to, let's say, a five-day fasting mimicking diet that's got 1,100 calories and, uh, and has uh, on day one 800 calories on day two, three, four, five, you're in a very, very different uh, domain. Um, so and then the question is, um, what is the benefit? What is the risk during the five days? And what is the risk after? So during the, the five days, uh, if you look at the white blood cells, if you look at the lymphocytes, uh, uh, there is no significant difference. So then uh, there is a difference only if you include the people that have inflammatory disease in the group. Uh, so they suggest that it, the, the, re, the small reduction temporary, it's occurring mostly because of reversal of the uh, uh, lymphocytosis caused by the inflammation uh, and not by uh, even a temporary reduction. So there may be a very slight but not significant reduction in the five days. What you get after, uh, at least in, in the mice, I can talk about it in people, I haven't we haven't published it yet, we're going to publish it this year. Uh, but what you get after in the mice is clearly immune rejuvenation, right? So the immune system now, you see the lymphoid myeloid ratio being improved. Uh, so, so then um, in, in view of a, of a viral pandemic, uh, I would caution people to be very careful, even though we don't see decrease in white blood cells, we don't see decrease in, in lymphocytes uh, temporarily, at least in those that, that don't have inflammatory uh, issues. Um, we don't know, right? We don't know, uh, you know, could it make it better or worse for you during the, the, the diet? We don't know. We, we do have, uh, the only evidence that I've seen um, is a paper, it was published in Cell, the, the, the famous uh, journal, a few years ago uh, in mice, and it showed that several viral infection, if you have a major decrease in glucose, uh, and that could, uh, uh, during fasting, that could negatively uh, affect or, or, or could help the virus. Um, so, so then the recommendation uh, that we've been uh, giving is um, um, if you have any risk, if you're at risk of, let's say, medical professional, but also somebody near, uh, somebody that, that has been infected, uh, probably better not to, uh, to do any fasting-making diet. Uh, if you're isolated, you maybe already had the, 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 the coronavirus or, um, and you are very, very low risk, then I would say it's probably okay. Uh, talk to your doctor if you're concerned. And if you do get any symptoms, then stop. Uh, so, yeah, I would not, uh, in any suspicion of symptoms or symptoms for the flu even, uh, not just the coronavirus, uh, stop the diet, begin eating normally because, again, that sugar level, uh, could be important. Is it for the immune system? Is it because it's uh, reducing ketone bodies? Uh, I don't. We don't know. Nobody knows. Uh, that paper specifically talk about sugars uh, being effective uh, uh, by reducing uh, ketone bodies by by reducing ketone bodies. But um, you know, we don't. We definitely don't know. We, first of all, we don't know the effects in people, and then we don't know the mechanisms. But um, I would say it would be uh, it'd be good to. Um, to be uh, cautious and, uh, and eat normally, at least based on the data we have, uh, if you are infected or, or if you suspect or are at risk of being infected. 
there's still a lot to learn in this space. So tell me what is going on in your lab? What are the questions that you are aiming to answer this year and the next? Yeah, so now we have many clinical trials. I think we have 25 clinical trials ongoing right now, and they go from Alzheimer to multiple trials on diabetes type 2, uh, diabetes type 1, multiple sclerosis, um, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, and uh, and then we're continuing to work on, on this uh, uh, multi-system regeneration, rejuvenation. Uh, so how do we um, how do we maximize this? Can we do this in the brain, for example? Uh, can the brain, uh, can part of the brain uh, be regenerated and rejuvenated, or is that uh, simply uh, something that is mostly seen in, in organs uh, um, that uh, are known to be uh, high, uh, include high proliferation? So, yeah, so those are some of the things we're working on. Uh, we're trying to apply this to many diseases, and, um, and uh, of course, we're, we're now, it's a very exciting, after 30 years of work, it's a very exciting in next couple of years because now we're seeing everything being tested. Right? So now we have, you know, for example, very soon, uh, we, we just finished a trial, we're gonna uh, publish it soon, but Leiden University is about to finish a trial on diabetes and the fasting-making diet. Uh, and again, we're gonna see three trials on cancer this year. So yeah, very exciting year because we see all of this uh, basic research uh, and translational research now being tested. It's not gonna work for everything, obviously. Um, but, uh, but you know, it, it'll be exciting to see uh, for which disease it works and uh, both at the uh, therapeutic level and also at the preventive level. So take me through your five pillars of longevity. I really appreciate that you incorporate a systems-based approach whenever you think about an intervention. So can you talk through what the things that you, that you, want to make sure are incorporated into any view um, of, of living longer. Yes, yeah, so, so I think it, it's very important that we move away. As you know, now lots of people are st- stopped listening to all of us because they feel that there's too many opinions. And, and if you look at it carefully, the people that have really spent their lives doing this uh, generally agree, right? There is some disagreement. But whenever I go to conferences and you have some of the, the, the top people uh, that, have been de- that have dedicated their lives to, to nutrition and longevity, uh, there is not much of a difference right? So uh, between the different people. And so I think that, um, that the five pillars uh, had the job of uh, uh, putting all the data together and say, you know, we should, we should have a better system to give recommendations. It shouldn't be all an epidemiological study was just done and it showed that eat, the people that eat more carrots uh, uh, live seven years longer, um, and so everybody should eat more carrots. And, uh, and the person saying it doesn't really know much about any of this, but uh, they're just giving you this recommendation. Uh, I think it should be, okay, well, let's go look uh, in all the pillars. So the centenarians, do they eat more carrots? You know, they, in the clinical trials, they randomize. Uh, uh, if you give people more carrots, uh, and, and, and versus a control, do they um, do better in six weeks, uh, a year, or whatever? And then uh, basic research. What would if you put mice on more carrots uh, and you keep them on it for two and a half years? Do they live longer? And and that's really a, a gold standard, right? Because uh, 
it's really pointless uh, if you decrease cancer by 30% and in the process increase cardiovascular disease by, by 30%. Right? So now you just gave somebody a difficult change that will it'll turn out to have a, a no effect on, on their uh, health or longevity. Um, so that's a, the, the third pillar. And uh, um, then um, another pillar is um, epidemiology, of course, a very important pillar. Uh, so yes, if you look at a population of a million people and those that regularly con con uh, adjusting for all the other uh, factors, uh, if those that eat more carrots uh, happen to live longer, um, that's a good pillar to, to keep in mind. Um, then finally, my, my fifth pillar is complex systems. And I wanted to also have a pillar in there that kept in mind the reductionism of, of a physicist and say, you know, um, whenever, when the, the other four pillars cannot explain, uh, go to a, a machine, like a plane or, or a car, and look at, uh, let's say, oxidation. How does oxidation affect a plane? Um, and uh, how overuse affects a, a car, right? So, um, for example, um, if, if people ask, if you look at the data on, on exercise, uh, let's say strenuous exercise and health and longevity, it's not that clear. Um, so is it good? Is it not so good? Uh, so that's when you might go to the fifth pillar and say, well, what happens if you drive a car for 500 miles a day after 20 years? Uh, most people will agree that's probably not a good idea. You know, it's not going to be a, a, a beat up car after, after. So, yeah, so then that pillar, I think, uh, looking at systems that are, are complex like a car or a plane uh, can help you make a decision even when the data doesn't really you know, it's very confusing because, of course, exercise get a lot of benefits. Uh, and so then you, the, the recommendation is do 150 minutes. And yes, you could do 300 minutes a week of exercise, but probably 150 is better because it's got, epidemiologically speaking, the same effects as 300 minutes or close to it. But it doesn't put you at risk of, of uh, you know, wear and tear. I see, I see. Balance, it sounds like, is a, one of the pieces in there. So tell me about your diet. What did you have for breakfast this morning? What do you eat? I eat, uh, uh, okay, my, diet, my breakfast is not my best longevity uh, feature, but I usually have tea and I have uh, two uh, slices of uh, raisin, um, uh, cinnamon raisin bread. Um, yeah, it, you know, I, 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 I'm also my own self-experiment, so I, I um, use a, a continuous glucose monitor recently to see what it does. And sure enough, you know, I shouldn't probably do it, should have a, a better breakfast, but it's my only violation. I like it and uh, doesn't, doesn't bother me uh, at all, so um, yeah, I'm okay with it. But I wouldn't recommend it that, that this way, but it's, it's fine. But. Uh, it does cause a, 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 a insulin uh, um, a sugar spike, a glucose spike, and therefore insulin release. Uh, so it's probably not a good thing. But then uh, my lunch usually is uh, either no lunch when I when I gain weight, or uh, something that is uh, almost completely uh, vegetable and olive oil. Um, and the rest of the time. Uh, and then I usually have a pretty big dinner. The, uh, my typical dinner is uh, maybe 60 or 70 grams of, of pasta. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, let's say a lot of uh, uh, chickpeas uh, and, and lots of vegetables. So it's about a pound of food. 
um, with only uh, a small uh, part of it, which is pasta. Uh, so this, this is the typical um, uh, dish that I, that I eat. And, and this is also very much the typical dish that people used to eat in those uh, very long-lived uh, uh, towns. And the interesting thing, if you look at uh, some of the centenarians that used to eat like that, you know, when, when food was not that abundant, uh, they still eat, eat like that. And they like it. They don't. Uh, and that's what I, I really appreciated. Some of these dishes that I think are, they taste great, uh, even though they're so simple. And 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 to a lot of people, they might look like uh, not uh, uh, not ideal. So now, for example, in Italy and all over the world, you see people with these dishes full of the pasta, very low nourishment, lots of starches, and in the end, uh, uh, you're just hungry all day. You're gonna get a big. Uh, like I do for my bread in the morning, another big spike of insulin, and uh, yeah, so so yeah, I think that, that that those are the adjustments I talk about in the book. You know, so eat a lot, don't eat uh, less like the Okinawans do. Eat more, um, but uh, eat more in this way. The calories are going to be less. The stomach is going to be full, so you're going to have a mechanic signal to the brain, but you also have a, a, a biochemical signal to the brain. I got everything I need, uh, and so. I'm okay for the next uh, uh, seven or eight hours, and that's that's what you want. Uh, uh, so, for example, uh, when I get up in the morning, I'm not hungry, uh, and uh, because I think of, of those factors. I'm curious your opinion about alcohol. In some of these communities of centenarians, we see that they consume not a lot, but a little bit of alcohol relatively regularly. What are you, your views on that? Yeah, so my view is the five pillars, and uh, and if you look at the five pillars, uh, you come up with uh, uh, with the epidemiology being a strong component, but also what you just mentioned, the centenarians, you come up with five drinks a week, uh, uh, up to five drinks a, w- a week being being perfectly fine, uh, seeing minimal effects on on, uh, on longevity. Uh, once you go more than five, you start seeing problems, but uh, up to one glass a day. Of wine, particularly, um, if anything, the, the, uh, it seems to be slightly beneficial as far as uh, lifespan is concerned. So, since a lot of us are quarantined these days, um, what book has influenced you the most and had the biggest um, impact on your career? If we're looking at reading lists for this quarantine time, what do you recommend? I mean, certainly the Roy Walford, my my uh, my former mentor. Uh, yes, his books a uh, um, long time ago, I changed my life, you know, I was starting to get uh, high blood pressure, high cholesterol as a, you know, in my late 20s. And, uh, and I thought, I don't want to, I mean, I always thought there's no way I'm taking drugs. And, but that was going to start already becoming a reality, you know, with my mom, with my having familial hypertension. Um, and so I, I read his book and, uh, and of course I was in his lab. Uh, so uh, I had almost no choice, um, but uh, yeah, he was talking about, hey, if you change the diet this way, your cholesterol is going to drop and your blood pressure is going to drop. And so, yeah, sure enough, that's what I did. And, and I never taken a drug uh, uh, in my life. So, um, yeah, so that, that I would definitely put that at the top of the... What was the title of, the, of that book? Um, I forget. I think uh, the 120-year... Uh, plan or but if you just look at Roy Walford uh, 
yes. There was one that had 120 years in there, that I one. believe. All right. Uh, so that was one of the ones that I had and I, and I read. So We'll put it on the list. So you run a foundation. Can you tell us more about the foundation? Yes, the foundation, uh, we started a few years ago with the um, profits from the book, uh, from the first book. Uh, I, I, it, it was, uh, I did very well in Italy and now it's doing very well in the United States. Uh, the book is Longevity Diet. And so that... Uh, um, that allowed the, the, the establishment of the two foundations called Create Cures. Um, you can find it at createcures.org. And the foundation is basically the idea is to um, educate on nutrition and longevity. Uh, but also, um, we now just we opened a, a, a um, clinic in, uh, um, in Italy uh, with registered dietitians and, and nutritionists. Uh, now, here we open in a clinic uh, now in Santa Monica with doctors, you know, with actual internal medicine uh, doctors, a dietitian, and a molecular biologist. And we, um, and the idea there is to serve as a hub uh, uh, for the sort of integrative medicine uh, uh, strategies that we are taking. So working, let's say, with oncologists at different hospitals, uh, cardiologists and, and uh, rheumatologists, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, yeah, so the, the, the focus now is a, a little bit on everybody, but eventually I think we're going to we want to focus more on the people that are in trouble. You know, so what if you're stage four uh, breast cancer or, or, or any other cancer? What if you have an autoimmunity that is in advanced stages? And we want to, um, obviously, based on everything I say, we want to sort of go to the to the foundation of the disease. You know, why do you have high cholesterol? You know, why you have high blood pressure? How can we fix the problem? Why do you have uh, pre-diabetes? Right. So. Uh, so some of them we already know we can take care of. It. So pre-diabetes we have a very high uh, efficacy, as you probably do. Um, but uh, you know some others we're still at the beginning. But how can we work with the existing uh, drugs and the existing uh, methods uh, to get the person back to a healthy state? You know, so I always mention, for example, you know celiac disease and how maybe 30 or 40 years ago lots of doctors were probably laughing when when the patient or somebody said oh but this is called by food and uh, and uh, you know and there was a, a doctor that already had described that but nobody was paying attention and so now imagine all the drugs that were given to people on celiac disease uh, instead of just removing the gluten uh, so yeah so I think that that's a clinic that the job is to say hey but there is a doctor that has been studying this and it's been showing this, uh, and so let's let's see, is he or she right? Uh, could we uh, uh, eliminate the problem? And then the foundation. Uh, now we're doing lots of education in uh, in schools, um, and the idea is eventually to have camp, summer camps and other camps where we can uh, uh, we can have the children do sports and also learn about uh, nutrition, uh, healthy nutrition. So maybe they can go home and uh, and educate the parents. Fantastic. What a, a wonderful goal. So anything else that you want to share with our listeners about where they can find more? Well, they can find more on the longevity diet, uh, my book. Uh, almost everything we talked about is in there. And uh, again, all the profits go to the, in fact, the book belongs to the foundation. And uh, um, and then uh, uh, the, you can go to the website for the foundation, createcures.org, create cures.org and um, and so we you can uh, there's lots of information there and lots uh, obviously we also 
uh, looking for always for donations to, uh, to continue to do what we do. We'll make sure all that's in the show notes. So look below and uh, find more, find links. So Walter, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, our love goes out to certainly your family and friends in Italy right now and um, really praying for resolution of all of this all over the world as quickly as possible. Thank you for doing what you do to contribute to the health and well-being of the planet and, um, and for being here today, sharing your time with us. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for being with us for this conversation with Dr. Walter Longo. If you didn't know already, one of the other things we do in The Collective is create supplements for better cognition, better aging, and more energy. If you're looking for any or all of that, go to neurohacker.com to learn more. And as our gift to you, we're offering an additional 15% off your first order using the code PODCAST65. If you have questions about this content, please leave them on our site at neurohacker.com slash podcast, and we'll work to get those answered on a future episode. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast, and we'll see you next time.